Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode from our centenary series, Exploring 100 Ideas in Genetics, we are venturing into the dark heart of the genome, untying nature's shoelaces, and looking back at the discovery of RNA splicing. This podcast has been going for six months now, and we'd love to know a bit more about you and your thoughts on the show. Which episodes have you enjoyed? What topics would you like us to tackle? Do you want to buy some cool swag? Pop over to geneticsunzip.com slash survey to fill in our very short listener survey and you'll be entered into a prize draw to win a signed copy of my book, Herding Hemingway's Cats. Thank you very much. Let me take you on a journey into the heart of darkness. A mysterious region of the genome where nothing makes sense and everything looks the same, endlessly repeating over and over again. A forbidding genetic terrain where, until relatively recently, scientific explorers were unable to venture. This is the Centromere, a strange arrangement of repeated DNA sequences in the middle of every chromosome. If you've ever seen pictures of X-shaped chromosomes when a cell is ready to divide, the centromere is the bit where the two arms meet, and it's the anchor point for the biological machinery that pulls them apart during cell division. Centromeres were first described in 1882 by the German microscopist Walter Fleming, a man we met back in episode 12, who noticed that chromosomes appeared to have little waist-like constrictions roughly halfway down. And by the 1900s, scientists had figured out that centromeres were an absolutely vital part of a chromosome. Without them, chromosomes get mislaid during division, so cells end up with the wrong number, leading to cancer or other problems. And chromosomes that accidentally acquire two or more centromeres are also in trouble, as they're likely to be pulled apart if they're being dragged in opposite directions. For something so essential... There's a lot of diversity in the world of centromeres, from short stretches of DNA just 125 letters long in yeast to hundreds of thousands in most plants and animals. But they do have one thing in common. They're incredibly repetitive. Centromeric DNA is usually made up from short sequences repeated over and over again. In the case of human centromeres, much of each chromosome centromere consists of so-called alpha satellite repeats, a 171-letter sequence that's repeated many thousands of times. Other organisms have their own variations on the repeat theme. Thalecress or Arabidopsis centromeric repeats are 178 letters long, while fruit flies are just five. Many organisms have just one centromere per chromosome. But tiny nematode worms have gone to extremes, with little regions spread across the full length of their chromosomes, effectively turning each one into one long centromere. But, curiously enough, it's not the underlying DNA sequence that makes a centromere a centromere, but the presence of certain proteins and marks on the ball-shaped histone proteins that package DNA, known as epigenetic modifications. In experiments on human cells grown in the lab, sticking centromere DNA into another region of a chromosome doesn't automatically give it a second centromere. 
but using clever molecular manipulation to stick centromere proteins onto a random stretch of DNA does. This idea that centromeres are determined by proteins rather than DNA was backed up by a recent study of orangutans living on the islands of Borneo and Sumatra. Within these populations, there are two versions of chromosome 12, with the centromere in different places. One centromere looks a lot like our own human version, packed with lots of repetitive DNA, and must be very old in evolutionary terms. The other is just a regular bit of DNA that happened to have attracted the right kind of centromere proteins relatively recently in evolutionary history. But it still works absolutely fine, and it has been perpetuated down the generations. That's not to say that the DNA within centromeres isn't interesting, but it has been very hard to study. There are very few genes in there, and DNA sequencing across the highly repetitive DNA in most centromeres is extremely difficult, so researchers have tended to skip over them in favour of nice, normal genes elsewhere. But improvements in sequencing technology mean that these previously dark hearts of our genomic map are now opening up for exploration. One intriguing finding comes from the fact that there's very little mixing at centromeres when eggs and sperm are made, so the DNA within them tends to be passed down relatively unscathed from generation to generation. Now that researchers can finally map out the confusing genetic landscape within centromeres, they can start comparing sequences between organisms or populations to look at evolution and ancestry. A recent study from a team of US researchers looking at DNA from the Thousand Genomes Project, which captures data from a wide range of human populations, discovered that there are several specific centromere lineages that stretch back half a million years. For example, some people with non-African recent ancestry have Neanderthal centromeres in their chromosome 11, while the centromere of chromosome 12 is home to an even more archaic stretch of DNA that must have come from an as-yet-unknown ancient human ancestor. Despite all these new tools and techniques, we're only just starting to scratch the surface of the mysterious terrain within centromeres. So, who knows what other hidden genetic secrets might be lurking within the dark heart of the genome. of crosswords and pub trivia might be familiar with the word aglet. That's the technical name for that funny bit of plastic or metal at the end of a shoelace that stops it from fraying. What you might not know is that every single one of our chromosomes also has the biological equivalent of aglets, more formally known as telomeres. Although they're made of DNA and protein, these molecular aglets do pretty much the same job as their shoelace equivalent. Chromosomes in very simple organisms like bacteria are circular, so there are no loose ends. But the chromosomes in every complex organism, from yeast upwards, are long strands of DNA with two ends. Cells don't like loose DNA ends, which are usually created when DNA gets damaged or broken, and will try and glue them back together again. But if a cell starts gluing random chromosome ends together, it's going to get into a big mess very fast. 
Since the late 19th century, microscopists knew that chromosomes were long strings, although exactly what they were made of was still a mystery. By 1911, fruit fly geneticist Thomas Hunt Morgan proposed that they were effectively strings of genes in a particular order, with a beginning, a middle and an end. And it was his student, Hermann Muller, who first coined the term telomere, from the Greek words for end and part, that's telos and meros. But one of the first people to really look closely at telomeres was plant geneticist Barbara McClintock. Yes, it's her again. Who was looking at chromosomes in maize corn kernels down her microscope, noticing distinct knobs at each end. She also figured out that these natural knobby ends behave differently from broken chromosomes, so they must have some kind of special molecular protection. Later on, she also figured out that there must be a specific enzyme responsible for healing these ends, as she put it. This was a prescient insight, as we'll soon find out. The next big step came in the 1970s. Fresh from her PhD with Fred Sanger in Cambridge, who'd just invented a revolutionary method for sequencing DNA, a bright young scientist named Liz Blackburn headed over to join the lab of Joe Gall at Yale University in Connecticut. She quickly put her sequencing skills to good use, focusing on some unusual chromosomes in a small, hairy, single-celled organism called Tetrahymena thermophila. She found that all of them had the same sequence at each end, TTGGG, repeated around 50 times. Other researchers found a similar arrangement in different unicellular species, suggesting that these strange repeated telomere sequences might actually be a thing. But these little organisms do have pretty weird chromosomes, so it wasn't until Blackburn and her collaborator Jack Shostak discovered that yeast chromosomes are all capped with a repeated sequence too, albeit one that's slightly different from tetrahymena, that it did turn out to be a thing after all. More impressively, they also showed that the tetrahymena sequence could sub in for the yeast one, suggesting that telomeres might work in the same way across all species. The discoveries began to come thick and fast. By the mid-80s, Blackburn was now running her own lab at Berkeley in California and had recruited a talented PhD student, Carol Greider. Together, they discovered that the ends of chromosomes aren't copied in the same way as the rest of the genome, but they have their own special enzyme, which they called telomerase. Even more strangely, this enzyme was mostly made of RNA, a single-stranded DNA-like molecule which it uses as a template to make more telomeres. By 1988, other scientists had unravelled the repeated DNA sequence in human telomeres, TTAGGG, unearthing the human telomerase enzyme a year later. The discovery of telomeres and telomerase netted Greider, Blackburn and Shostak the 2009 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. That's the only time to date that two women have won a science prize in the same year. By this time, the field of telomere research was a burning hot topic. Not just because they're cool and interesting in their own right, but because of the connection to cancer. And that's where those sweet, sweet grant dollars are. And to the inescapable nature of ageing and death. Back in 1881, the great German cell biologist August Weissmann was pondering the nature of life. 
he figured that death must inevitably come to us all because old, worn-out tissues couldn't keep on renewing themselves forever. Then, in 1965, Leonard Hayflick finally managed to show that this was sadly true. After trying to grow healthy human cells in petri dishes in the lab, Hayflick realised that there was a finite number of times they could divide before they gave up the unequal struggle and died. It's now known as the Hayflick limit in his honour. That's because most regular cells in the body switch off their telomerase, so they can no longer copy their telomeres when they divide. Over time, the telomeres get shorter and shorter, eventually fraying the ends of the chromosomes like a frayed shoelace that's missing its aglet, and triggering a crisis when the cell realises that there are all these apparently broken bits of DNA hanging around. The result is either a kind of long-term sleep, known as senescence, or death. It's worth pointing out that the Hayflick limit has really only been tested in cells grown in the relatively harsh conditions of the lab, and it may not reflect the situation inside a nice, cosy body. Even so, we know that there are some kinds of cells that manage to break the Hayflick limit. One obvious example is the stem cells that are responsible for creating eggs and sperm, as it's obviously very important that the next generation starts off with a full-length set of genetic shoelaces. Another is cancer cells, which reactivate telomerase in order to become immortal and keep on dividing unchecked forever. Telomeres and telomerase are now a hot topic in ageing and cancer research and have also been implicated in other diseases. There's a huge amount of interest in using the length of people's telomeres as a measure of health, ageing and disease, not to mention enterprising scientists and biotech companies searching for the elixir of youth by trying to turn telomerase back on. However, this has proved to be tricky, and it wasn't until 2018, around 30 years after Grider and Blackburn's discovery of telomerase, that researchers finally figured out the fine details of the three-dimensional structure of the human version which is an important step towards finding drugs that can act on it. So while it's looking unlikely that telomere-targeting drugs will enable us to cheat death forever, I think there's a chance that tying up nature's shoelaces might help to keep us dancing for longer. This is Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. You can find us on Twitter, at Genetics Unzip, and online at geneticsunzipped.com. Please do take a minute to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from, and it would be great if you could rate and review the show. It really does help other people to discover it. And please do tell all your friends. Send out a tweet, accost someone in a hallway. It all helps other people to discover the show too. The molecular biology revolution of the 1960s and 70s was built on the backs of microscopic bacteria such as E. coli and the tiny bacteriophage viruses that infect them. As it became clear that the same DNA and protein code was at work in everything from bacteria to elephants, plants to pandas, scientists thought that the underlying processes controlling genes would be the same too. Frustratingly, this turned out not to be the case. 
Whenever a gene is switched on, its DNA sequence is read or transcribed to make a kind of molecular photocopy known as RNA. And it's this RNA that acts as the instructions that tell the machinery inside a cell to make a particular protein. So, you might think that any given piece of RNA would be an exact match for the gene it was transcribed from, right? Wrong. By the 1970s, researchers knew exactly how big every gene in E. coli was and could match each one up to an RNA message of identical length. But when they looked at genes in larger, more complex organisms like humans, something didn't add up. The RNA messages in the nuclei of human cells, where the DNA is, were far too long, each one many times bigger than it needed to be to encode the recipe for a protein. But weirdly, the RNAs in the rest of the cell, where the protein-making machinery was found, were a much more sensible length. So what was happening? One of the people who solved the mystery was Rich Roberts, winner of a share of the 1993 Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine. And the more dubious honour of being designated Dr December in the 1997 Stud Muffins of Science calendar. His discovery started from an experiment trying to find out whether genes in adenovirus, a tiny virus that causes the common cold, worked in the same way as genes in bacteria. And, by deduction, because the cold virus genes get switched on by human gene-reading machinery when it infects our cells, it would suggest that human cells must work in the same way too. Roberts and a new recruit to his lab at Cold Spring Harbour, Richard Gelinas, set about coming up with a clever way of grabbing the RNA messages from adenoviruses as they were made inside human cells and matching them up to their corresponding DNA-based genes. But something was wrong. Instead of seeing a neat match between the 12 viral genes and 12 viral RNAs, their experiments showed there was just one RNA which appeared to match all the genes. Weird, huh? <sighs> After double, triple and quadruple checking that Gelinas hadn't messed up the experiment, Roberts realised that the only way to figure out what was going on would be to get hold of a high-powered electron microscope to have a look at the DNA and its corresponding RNAs to see how they matched up. When I spoke to Roberts for my book about how genes work, Herding Hemingway's Cats, he told me the story of how this experiment came to be. Neither Richard nor I were electron microscopists, but we had a couple of people down the hall who were really good. On a Saturday morning, we went down to them and said, we've got this idea for an experiment, could you do it? And they said, well, it's never been done that way before, but we'll give it a go. These two talented electron microscopists were Louise Chow and her husband Thomas Broker, who ended up having to invent a completely new technique to look at how DNA and RNA were matching up together in order to solve the mystery. Their images were grainy and confusing, looking more like strands of spaghetti on a dirty plate than microscopic strands of RNA and DNA, but they told an incredible story. Each strand of DNA was matched up to a long string of RNA, stuck together where the sequences matched. But in certain places, the DNA had nothing to pair with and was looping out, as if there were bits of the RNA message missing. 
It looked like the virus was making one long string of RNA covering all its genes, then cutting it up and pasting bits together to make 12 separate messages encoding proteins, something that had never been seen before. According to Roberts, these pictures were the crucial evidence that convinced sceptical journal editors and reviewers that what they had found was real. If there really were millions of molecules in your initial sample, and you're just looking at two or three, how do you know you're not looking at the weird ones, he told me. But we already had all the biochemical evidence to back it up, and as soon as people saw the pictures, everybody believed it at once. In 1977, Roberts published a paper in the journal Cell with the title An Amazing Sequence Arrangement at the Five Prime Ends of Adenovirus 2 Messenger RNA. It was the first description of split genes, or what we now call RNA splicing, and it was well worth the superlative headline. In keeping with this rather excessive trend, their follow-up paper described the peculiar cutting and pasting arrangement as Baroque nuclear architecture. Rather than being a concise, neat recipe to make a protein, every gene in complex organisms is a rambling, almost incoherent mess of exons, those are the bits that actually encode for proteins, interspersed with a bunch of unwanted nonsense, known as introns. Once an RNA message is transcribed, the introns get chopped out, the exons get glued together, and there you have it, a short, coherent recipe to make a protein. Thanks to Roberts and Galinus biochemistry and Chow and Broca's electron microscopy skills, a whole bunch of weird observations from labs around the world suddenly started to make sense. RNA splicing was the perfect explanation, and the idea quickly became established dogma. Importantly, the discovery of splicing also explains another biological mystery. If human cells have around 20,000 genes – how do we manage to make around 200,000 different proteins? The answer lies in alternative splicing, where a selection of specific exons gets glued together to make one version of a protein, and a different set is stuck together to make a different version. Finally, there are another couple of splice girls involved in this story. And that's Sue Burgett, a postdoc in the lab of Phil Sharp at MIT, and Claire Moore, who was their technician at the time. Around the same time that Roberts and his team made their discovery and he started talking about it at meetings and conferences, Birgit was noticing something similarly strange in her own research on genes. Roberts told me she'd spotted something odd and knew that something funny was going on, which Phil didn't believe. And I think it was only later that he came to realise that what she'd been telling him all along was correct. Once Phil Sharp heard about splicing, everything slotted into place, and he and his team raced to publish their own paper. While Sharp got a share of the 1993 Nobel Prize for the co-discovery of splicing along with Roberts, Birgit and Moore were left out, although they were given a nod in MIT's press release about the happy occasion. On the other side, Gilinas, Chow and Broker could only bask in Roberts' reflected glory. I don't know whether they were also invited to use the croquet lawn that he bought with his prize money. As Chow pointed out at the 2017 AAAS meeting, as a reserved foreign woman scientist, I was not accorded recognition commensurate with these revolutionary discoveries. 
proper credit remains a touchy issue for budding scientists. As we've heard in previous podcasts, these omissions happen because of the rules of the Nobel Prize. With only three living scientists able to take a share, Nobels tend to go to lab heads and lead investigators. Is this a fair system? As science becomes ever more of a team effort, I'm increasingly feeling that it isn't. What do you think? For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a minute to fill in our listener survey. That's at geneticsunzip.com survey to be in with a chance to win a signed copy of my book, Herding Hemingway's Cats. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Kat Arney, and is produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo was designed by James Mayle, and production was by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.